Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. The discussion today will focus on cybersecurity technologies and the significance of government and industry partnerships in developing these technologies. Some of the questions driving our discussion are, what progress has been made in the development and use of cybersecurity technologies? What does it mean to be attack agnostic when developing cybersecurity technologies? How near or far are we from taking the burden of people trying to protect themselves from different types of cyber attacks? And how significant is the government and private sector partnerships when it comes to dealing with current and future cyber threats? I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Pat Moyo. She's partner at SignWave Ventures. Pat is an expert in matters of cybersecurity and computing, vetting the technical viability of emerging technologies. She's had a 30-year career in the intelligence community in a variety of technical and leadership positions. Pat has a bachelor's degree from Fordham University and a doctorate from Yale. Pat, it is so delightful to have you as a guest today. Welcome. Thanks a lot, Dave. I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. So before we jump into the details of our discussion topic, how about sharing with listeners some professional highlights? Sure. So I've had a a varied career in In my time at the agency, I worked in a number of computing, analytic, and cybersecurity roles, ending up in the research part of the organization for the last third of my career, working on hard problems in those areas. In my last position in the Trusted Systems Research Group, we investigated secure operating systems, mobile security, mobile phone security, formal methods. We tended to do the kinds of research that individual companies can't afford or the lead time is so long that you need somebody to do the foundational work before companies can pick up on it and start making money. Since then, I did some consulting, worked with NIST for a while on the cybersecurity framework and a number of other issues, cyber-physical system security and so on. And then I joined Wave, which is a early stage venture fund concentrating on enterprise technology that can help 
entities that haven't been using information significantly in their business processes to become more information driven. And the government certainly fits that characteristic, as do a number of industrial segments and so on. And I've been with SineWave for about eight years now, really scouring the technical landscape for interesting technologies, again, in the areas of cybersecurity, computing, and analytics. Fabulous. In fact, I'm really intrigued to learn about your career trajectory, considering that you got your doctorate in philosophy. So was it on the liberal side of things? So the philosophy that I did, I thought my, my dissertation was in the area of phenomenology, which is about learning about what's essential or what really matters about things by considering the the context in which they live and the accidents that they that you can observe about them, and so it really is a way of looking for the the essential gist of a matter and and coming to understand reality in that way. And I think that's been a central theme of all my work throughout the agency and my business ability to sort of cut through what's accidental and, and get to what matters. And the other thing there was a strong concentration in, in logic, which tends to go hand in hand with some phenomenological stuff. And so that, again, was a a thought area that that really stood me in in good stead in my very varied career. I, I feel very fortunate because I got some really exciting technical opportunities that one typically wouldn't associate with a philosophy degree and was able to really become what I consider myself a technologist now, despite the fact that I had probably the least technical degree also. I'm glad you said what you said, because I know many listeners would be inspired to hear that. In the past episodes, I've had discussions with other experts, and many of them have been very vocal about the importance of drawing people from different fields. Cybersecurity does not have to be the monopoly of the technocrats. And by technocrats, we normally associate them with the computer scientists, the computer engineers. It's a pretty large field and it could benefit from a variety of intellects. It could benefit from an eclectic perspective. So that's that's truly fascinating. Getting to the discussion on the state of cybersecurity technologies, progress is being made in a variety of areas from authentication to behavioral analytics, blockchain, manufacturer usage, descriptive, which associates with IoT devices. I'm interested in how you size up the progress. Where do you see the strengths? Where do you see the gaps? What's your assessment of the cybersecurity technology landscape? So I think there are many excellent component technologies. I would actually even say a sufficient set of component technologies to build strong cybersecurity solutions. I think that many problems like endpoint protection, network segmentation, authentication, encryption are essentially solved. There are technologies that do these kinds of things and do them well. Yet the still number of breaches, the breaches rise with the investment in, in cybersecurity in some sense, and that is not causal. But but and you so we wonder why if there are these basic fundamental sound building blocks, are the solutions not as robust as we would like? 
And I think what's really lacking is the ability to architect these components into a solution to understand, again, what matters, what needs to be guarded against, what needs to be in the internals of the system, and how to make these things usable. There's a lot of guidance about the controls you have to have in place, and there's 128 of them or whatever. And people have a hard time finding their way through these lists and lists of things to a solution, a reasoned solution that works in their space. And I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be done is is making these technologies work together and work appropriately for the system in which they are used. Interesting. Very interesting. So while, while we were going through our planning meeting, you made a very interesting yet poignant statement. You said that we need to be able to develop technologies that should be attack agnostic. I'd love for you to ex- expand on that. And, and because I know listeners would love to hear that perspective. Yeah. And I, I think, again, talking to why stuff has not worked as well as we would have hoped to date, part of this is due to the fact that a lot of the development of technologies and particularly the selling of technologies is centered around threats, scaring people about threats, figuring out what threat is where, advertising this particular piece of technology to deal with this particular threat, and so on. And and what that does is it, it creates this marketplace with a gazillion pieces of tech in it, each of which does, many of which do just niche little things. And the user is really has no great understanding of which of those attacks are likely for them. How severe are those attacks? Is this the only solution against that attack? Is something else I'm already doing as a side effect addressing this particular attack and so on? So when you concentrate on the attack, on the externals of the system, on what's coming at you, it's a much more confusing space and one that is difficult to get confidence that you're really covering the waterfront. If instead you take an attack agnostic approach and you look at technologies that you can deploy internal to your system to make your system impervious to attack, no matter what that attack happens to look like, you can have much better success. So for example, you're worried about an attacker getting into your system and and moving around to get from a compromised user space, for example, to a space where they can do some damage to your system in terms of stealing data or encrypting data or whatever. And so you you think about what are the technologies that enable me to stop anyone from moving around. It doesn't matter what exact movement method they're picking, what matters is if they're moving in a way that you don't want, that that your system does not authorize, they should be stopped, right? And so there you deal with things like micro-segmentation, you can deal with some zero trust kinds of policy-driven solutions, where what it simply stops lateral movement regardless of its accidental characteristics. And again, since you asked me about philosophy, this is a very phenomenological approach, right? You accept, you st- you stop the essential thing, which is movement, rather than the accidental thing, using this means to get around. And, and it becomes very important. You can see this with access control, right? There's all of this phishing tech, anti-phishing technology. Phishing is a huge threat. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk about it later. I think we're going to talk about how humans can interact with these technologies. But anyhow, phishing is a big threat. 
And you want to stop that. You want to stop people from stealing credentials via phishing. But it's also the case your credentials can be stolen by password guessing. They can be stolen by web scraping. They can be stolen in a bunch of different ways. And what you really want is to stop the bad guy from using credentials regardless of how they stole them, right? They read them off my sticky note regardless you want to be able to stop them from using credentials. And there's simple mechanisms like two-factor authentication, which means you stole my password. Now you also have to have stolen my phone if you want to use that password effectively because the two-factor authentication would require that additional means. So there you're not looking at phishing as the method. You're looking at the fact that via phishing, someone stole credentials and you can stop stolen credentials from being effective in the system. And, And this is what's It means to be attack agnostic. You stop attackers from getting in, you stop them from moving around, you stop them from getting out, exfiling your data or or encrypting your data, executing their payload in, in any important way. And the details of how they choose to do them, the shape of the malware they choose to execute simply doesn't matter. What matters is that these actions can be identified in the system and, and stopped in a more general way. Um, yes, you know, on a bit long there, but no, no, I think it's very interesting. Thanks for sharing. As a follow up, while you're saying that it doesn't matter how the hackers get into your system, wouldn't I want to know how they are doing something to be able to prevent it from happening in the future? Or am I missing a point here? Well, I think you need to know it if you're a security company that are making solutions that would stop it in the future. I think you need to know it if you're a government that's analyzing these things to understand the state of the threat, perhaps do forensic activity to find bad guys and stop them. But as an average user, say you knew the malware took this particular form, and what could you do differently, right? If you had a technology that would be effective against that particular form of malware, you would have deployed it because it's unpredictable when the malware is going to come at you. If you don't have a technology that deals with that particular shape of malware, you're, you then have to fall back on using these attack agnostic methods that don't care what its shape was. So you might want the knowledge, I don't know, for reporting to management. Or, but, but in reality, if there are no knobs in your system that you can turn using this information, what's the point of having the information? There's nothing you can do to change your response to the threat because you know the particulars of the threat. Okay, that, that helps. I guess I was approaching it from the perspective of a developer of solutions. Correct. Yeah. Correct. There you do need to to be aware of what's going on in the world. And one of the things that's actually different about my role in SignWave compared to my role in the government is my focus has really switched from how is cybersecurity from the the consumer's point of view rather than from the developer's point of view. And that's been an interesting change in thinking. Interesting. And I think this is a great opportunity to, to share with both the user and the developer community. Some words of wisdom. For instance, if I'm a developer listening in on this conversation, what should be some focus areas to develop new technologies? And say I'm a consumer of these technologies, how should I approach cybersecurity 
governance? And I know these are very broad mm-hmm. questions. I, I'll let you take it whichever way you want. So feel feel comfortable. So um, there are a couple of paradigms or, or, or topic areas that I think have a lot of promise that if, if I were developing technologies at this point, I would be concentrating in those areas. I think zero trust is a hugely important insight. It's a concept that's been around forever, but now computation is quick enough that you can actually readily carry out the kinds of activities needed to make sure that if somebody's coming into your system, they're supposed to be, and that when they're in your system, they're doing the things that they're supposed to have access to. So I would, I think there are many exciting zero trust technologies ranging from the network layer up through the application layer. And I I think that area is really important and is attack agnostic in the way I think it ought to be. The other thing that's exciting to me is context-aware security. As we were less mature in our understanding of security and security policies, we we often had to make decisions that were sort of all or nothing. There was no nuance to the, the execution of controls, security controls on our system. And that led to some unfortunate situations. There was the Facebook hack where they were down for many, many hours because their security controls made it difficult for their resilience people to come back in and bring the system back up. And, and so when you have these very draconian black and white choices, this is the only ones available to you. It can often be problematic. So I think context-aware security, where you can be much more nuanced in what you allow and why, looking at more features to determine whether this activity is one you want to permit or not, I think that's very important as well. And I think over time, as we start having more machine-to-machine communications that we want to secure, for example, we're going to need the policies to really be robust enough to handle operational situations that aren't always the same and that black and white doesn't always work for. I think there's still some, the hardware layer is always, I don't know, seems always to be the least covered in, in most people's investments in cyber. And in some sense, that's a problematic because the more foundational you are, the better. In some cases, I think it kind of makes sense because hardware attacks are often close access and beyond the realm of, of many over-the-wire hackers. And so maybe they're not so important for the, the average user. I think blockchain, and I, this, I'm a little ambivalent about blockchain now. I think it has a lot of promise for data provenance. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it been used yet in a way that delivers on that promise. I remain optimistic that it will end up being an important part of our, our solution space, but I'm a little worried as to why it's taking quite so long to find its way. There's some stuff as a consumer that I would in general worry about. For example, a lot of people are selling behavioral analytics and AI, and, and they're selling it in language that makes it sound like the decisions that come out of these systems are one you can rely on and act on. And what's not often spoken about or well understood with cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, is that artificial intelligence is probabilistic at best, right? It can't be completely right. It can be only right to a certain percentage. And in some percent, some cases, those percentages are quite high, but in some percentage cases, they're really not. And when people want to take actions on these probabilistic 
measures where where the confidence measures are not clearly understood or displayed by the technology, I think you can get into some very, very bad situations. I've seen some insider threat situations in particular where people use these probabilistic approaches and say, oh, this guy's been coming in late at night or he's printing from an unusual printer and stuff like that. And then they they start opening security cases on these individuals and can be quite life disrupting when it turns out the probability of, of those things, meaning you're a spy or meaning you're a, a hacker, is in the 70%, right? So it's going to be wrong a lot. And I think as we start doing these more disruptive actions based on these conclusions, we have to be a little more careful that the people taking these actions really understand the confidence in those kinds of conclusions. So for that reason, I'm very leery of many of the behavioral analytics and AI technologies that are are coming out now. The other thing that I think consumers or users need to, to think about is what are they shaped like, right? Do they, can they, is if the technology assumes a security operations center and they don't really have people that can look at all of this data and make sense of it, that's not a technology they should buy, right? If the technology assumes a, a level of expertise in their own company that they don't have, they should not be looking at, at those technologies as things they should deploy. And it may be that the other solutions are simpler, but they they are more appropriate to, to use in their setting because the chances of error are, are much, much lower because they match what the company is structured as and, and what their security knowledge consists of. So I think, and then the final thing I want to say on this is users ought to know when less is more. There are a number of partial technologies, things that address this or that individual cybersecurity problem. And the thought is you buy a bunch of them and then magically they all work together to come up with a holistic solution. But their working together is is often problematic and the holistic solution often still has gaps. And the individual problem may be mentally solved by something else. So for example, ransomware is malware with an encryption payload rather than a steal your data payload. If you had strong malware protection, you don't need additional ransomware protection because the problem with ransomware is that malware got into your system. And that it shows to encrypt rather than steal doesn't mean you need something different to fix it. And so I think people need to be careful to understand when risks that sound very, very different in their effect actually are the same in their cause and that their solution space needs to address the causes and and not the effects. Great insights. And you've shared so many things that I'm excited about. So I want to pick up on a few things and share my two cents. First, you're so right that there's so much out there by way of technology solutions, and we are getting swamped and inundated with new names for new types of attacks. And it is very hard for even for reasonably sophisticated professionals to organize these different types of attacks under categories and try to see the big pictures, like how would I map these attacks 
to the different types of vulnerabilities and the tools associated with the vulnerabilities. There's been some mapping. I'm privy to that, but it is very, very confusing. It is very technical. And when somebody is buying or investing in new technologies, and there's going to be people who will not have this kind of a background or may not afford to have the expertise to filter through what the vendors are offering. Mm-hmm. The suggestion that I have, and I think it is in sync with what you're saying, is let the vendors provide you in writing what their solutions can't do, mm-hmm. what they are not promising, and how is that significant or insignificant from their assessment of the company. And talking about company assessment, you're so right when you said, just don't keep buying technologies because your competitor has them. You should have them. You've read about about it. Understand your organization. Understand your needs. It goes back to technology 101. Like Again, to quote you, you said, less is often more. I couldn't agree with you more. In the world of general technology implementation, I like to share my perspective that if possible, you're better off investing in one or two platforms as opposed to having 15, 20 different solutions because now it becomes a coordination challenge, coordination nightmare, a maintenance nightmare. So the extent to which you can simplify your solutions, the extent to which you have greater clarity on what do you mean by cybersecurity defense in the context of your organization. And once you have that clarity, evaluate the vendors, evaluate the solutions, see what fits best. And finally, it's not enough just to buy the tools, look inwards and see, is the organization ready Mm -hmm. from a a people standpoint, from a process standpoint, you will agree that going back to the people process technology framework, they all need to fit. You can have a great technology, but you don't have the right process. You don't have trained people. End result is not going to be great. So to find that balance requires some planning, requires some reflection, requires some thought, as opposed to just falling for a pitch. Mm-hmm. So, so that was great. You covered a lot of very, very interesting and important ground. So moving there's along. One, if please, I may, there's, there's one comment I want to add to what you just said, which please. I agree with 100%. And I think it's particularly interesting when we're going into sort of a, an enterprise that already has significant cybersecurity investment. Some of these new technologies, some of the zero trust, for example, actually render obsolete a ton of the stuff that people have already bought and enable you to take a fresh look at your architecture and perhaps jettison a number of tools you have in your inventory. One of the things I worry about is that CISOs don't do that often enough. They don't look at their system and say, all right, now that I have this other opportunity, I, I this thing can go away. They're afraid they'll look like they made a mistake if they argued for this $300,000 piece of technology. And now they're saying, well, we can get rid of this 300000 piece of technology. People can say, well, why did you make me buy it in the first place? It's only been two years. That's, what's the issue here? And so I, I think we need to, to get a different kind of 
technical integrity and the decision-making on this space, realize the space is evolving and realize that revisiting and changing is not indication of error and, and that we need to be brave enough to just do that. Absolutely. You have to manage expectations. From a CISO standpoint, that means you have to be able to educate, inform, socialize mm-hmm. your leadership team and prepare them for what you just said, that yes, I might come to you asking for money to invest in certain technologies, but do remember that it's quite possible that in a matter of a year's time or even less, these technologies might be obsolete and we might have to think about investing in something else. That's the kind of world we live in. It's a mm-hmm. kind of an informed risk that we need mm-hmm. to take. I think the the word here is informed risk. Yeah. Because like you said, just like with AI solutions, there is a probability involved. Similarly with human decision-making, we are making decisions based on the information that we have. As long as we've made a reasonable effort to get our arms around the issues and make informed as opposed to chaotic, impulsive, Mm -hmm. reactive decisions, I think we are a little better off. I I don't know if if you have this one ideal approach or one ideal solution, but I think the message that I'm picking up from you, cutting through the technical aspects of it, is you have to be very deliberate. You have mm-hmm. to be very thoughtful. You have to involve the technocrat as well as the business person yes. who offer both the perspectives and then look at it from a holistic standpoint, develop an integrated view yep. as opposed to a siloed approach to things. So moving along to a question that is very close to my heart. I imagine a day, and I'm sure many do, where humans don't have to worry about knowing the do's and don'ts. Will there ever come a day when I could be as carefree as possible and click on anything I want, knowing that there is technology that will not allow the perpetrators to exploit that and do damage? Will we ever get to that world? So I I am optimistic that technologies exist or are under development that will enable the system to take care of itself, even in the face of user error. Now that said, people should always be responsible and and don't don't be yeah, yeah. don't don't be foolhardy. But I, I think it's unreasonable to say, all right, let's do phishing training so people will recognize that this is a phishing message. Phishing training is not all that successful. Attackers get more and more clever about making messages look like legitimate messages. People are often in a hurry. The boss wants this now, and they're not going to stop and parse the the from line to make sure it's a L and not a 1. So I think it's unreasonable to to put the burden of reducing phishing on phishing education. I think there are technologies that can do that parsing for people and so on and so forth. But apart from that, as I spoke earlier, if you architect your system in a way that even if the credential is stolen, it's not useful, the phishing won't be as problematic. And there's there's lots of things that talk again about zero trust technology that even if somebody got in, they can't move around or if they get in, they're recognized as bad and they're stopped from executing. So so I think there, there are going to be technologies that let the system protect itself. I think part of what we need to do is, is stop expecting the user to, to be an element in that protection 
And we have to stop thinking that, that there has to be humans in the loop for all these security decisions and get comfortable with the notion of the system protecting itself. And not that, that every security block, that every action that's blocked needs to have a human okaying it. If, if, so long as the human is, is in the loop like that, then we won't have technologies where the system can protect itself because there'll be this time lag in which bad things happen and, and, and you, you can't overcome that. So I think, yes, as these technologies develop, as people become more comfortable with the notion of a self-protecting, self-healing system, we will be able to take some of the burden off the users. And then now we should certainly take the blame off the users. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's hard to think that, that it, putting them at fault does you any good. True, very true. You, you want to be able to take the human element out to the extent possible. Otherwise, it's a never-ending problem because you can train, you can make people aware, but then people will forget and then you have to retrain. Mm -hmm. So the extent to which, like you said, we can develop self-healing systems, self-correcting systems, self-fixing systems, whatever the appropriate word is, which is where I think a lot of development is taking place as well. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a welcome, welcome improvement, welcome change. So from the standpoint of technology development, it is a given that you want the best resources involved. If you just left it to the private sector, they would innovate often to the detriment of society. That's where government comes into play, rules and regulations come into play to lay some ground rules. At the same time, the government is able to do things that the private sector cannot. What is your assessment of the partnership in terms of where we are and where we should be. So I think it's interesting that because there's a lot of new initiatives in terms of public-private partnership in place, and and certainly the awareness of the need for this kind of interaction is is heightened these times. Where it seems to be working well is in what I would call forensic situations. Something happened, and the government helps the private sector figure out what happened, what are the characteristics of that attack, how could they prevent it, and and so on. And I think that's an important collaboration and a, a fairly effective collaboration, then the government can disseminate warnings or, or papers that describe these conditions and so on. The flip, the downside of that, though, is that's a very attack-centered way of working. And as I said earlier, I think that that way of working is, is really long for the world. And I think for the security community, that collaboration is viable and important. I think for the user community, that collaboration doesn't have as much impact. Another type of collaboration that I'm quite familiar with is, is such collaboration or, or in development collaboration. I think that's usually important. As I stated in passing earlier, the government is often in a position to do research that's longer term, where the payoff is more uncertain, where you don't need to get to a bottom line to a, to a to revenue within three years. 
that an industry just can't do. And I think recognizing the enabling ways for that government investigation to translate effectively into the private sector is very, very important. I think there are initiatives to involve academics or, or commercial people in the actual government research. And I think those provide some transition paths that are, are quite viable. And I applaud that and think there needs to be much more of that. There are activities to have government employees embedded in companies to, to learn how the problem looks from the commercial point of view. And, and similarly, I, I think that that kind of research and, and development collaboration is, is extremely important. One of the issues that I was involved in and and I'm, I'm changing my mind about actually is the, the issue of government guidance for normal for for enterprises or small and medium businesses or users of, of, of any type. And the government is very, very smart and knows a lot about that guidance and has a lot of processes in place to get good input from commercial sector on that guidance. And this framework, for example, had many conferences in which people collaborated on what this guidance should look like and and what are the controls that matter and and what are the levels that make sense. And, And I think it was greatly enriched by that commercial involvement in its formulation. However, the government has fairness requirements and requirements that keeps them from from saying anything that will block innovation, that leaves that guidance at, at quite a high level. So I think the NIST framework is right, but for many people, it's kind of difficult, if not impossible, to actually use to, to help them making concrete decisions. So I think there's a step, a collaboration step that's missing from the statement of the initial. And that, and again, for the fairness reasons and the you can't stop collaboration reasons, that's right. You don't want this to come out with saying for control number three, you need to need Joe Schmo's encryption mechanism because we know it works because that's giving Joe Schmo an unfair commercial advantage. And that's saying that the only thing that will work here is encryption. And if some new method comes out in the future, that would work just as well as encryption. It's it's proscri- it wouldn't meet the sort of standard and guidance. So you have to keep these things in a way where you allow for the inclusion of new technologies and in, into to comply with the standards, even when you have not yet imagined those new technologies, and to avoid picking winners. So that leaves this this translation space that I think in, in the formulation of the framework, NIST was the lead and the commercial people provided contributions. Perhaps there's this other stage where the commercial people, the various industry segments, interpret that guidance and make it more consumable for individuals. So I think the government certainly has the expertise and the wherewithal to think seriously about these problems in a foundational way, but then getting that foundational understanding translated into pragmatic solutions is a place where both in terms of tech transition and interpretation of guidance, I I think some work is, is needed. Yeah, I guess I'll stop there. Interesting. Oh, it, it makes a lot of sense. You've again touched upon many points. And as you were speaking, it kind of dawned on me that we are really talking about, and it's probably on a bit of a philosophical note, we're talking about this important tension between complexity and simplicity mm-hmm. to solve 
problems of the magnitude that we are dealing with in the cybersecurity space. These are complex problems that often require complex responses. However, the communication of it, like when you say the prescriptive part of it, to be able to filter down what needs to be done, contextualize it, that's mm-hmm. another skill set that is so important. Because what's the point of making 112 guidance or recommendations about controls? Some people will just look at the enormity of it and will just say, well, I don't think I have the time to go through it. I'll just go and hire somebody and get them to give me some quick suggestions of what are the basic things I can do to protect my organization. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time to go through those 115 guidance or recommendations. So that's where we need some expertise to help contextualize the recommendations. And I know that CISOs and CIOs play that role. They get the details and then they filter through it and then they try to implement what makes sense. So that's kind of my two cents. We are coming to the end of our session here. I've been really enjoying it. So it's too bad that we have to call it for today. But I'd like to give you the opportunity to conclude the discussion with some final thoughts, some key messages for the listeners. Yeah, so I guess, and you you were coming at this, I think, in the comments you just made and comments you made earlier. When it comes down to it, really what matters is that people think critically about their system and their problem space and their solution space. And it yes, there, there are ways in which their situation is similar to others, but there are ways in which their situation is different from others. And they need to not get caught up in marketing so much as in, in a, a decision-making process that's driven by an understanding of what they do and what they need to protect and what their system is structured like, what their skill levels are, and really thoughtfully choose their solutions with that understanding of their starting point in mind. Uh, I think this return to to, to solutions that are based in your system and not concentrate on what the attack looks like, but what does my system and more importantly, my, my business workflows, what do they look like? and build solutions that protect them and and, and not solutions that, that are based on external threat conditions. I think there's a lot of promise, despite the fact that there are still a number of breaches. I, I think the technology has come a long way. People are, are beginning to think, to, to be much more security aware. It's a big disparity between where enterprises are at and where small and medium businesses are at. And so the ecosystem, you can't have a lot of bad things floating around in it just because a lot of users are just simply not security aware at all. There's no security hygiene in huge parts of the ecosystem. I certainly see the interest in using security solutions moving way down to smaller and, and medium-sized businesses. And I think that will actually be a big help too in that the whole ecosystem will be healthier as more and more of the users begin to become security aware. Fantastic, Pat. That was terrific. Thank you again for your time. As as I said, I look forward to many more future discussions with you. Excellent. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. A special thanks to Pat Muyo for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show 
so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization. 